Today's scripture is from Galatians chapter 5, verse 25 through chapter 6, verse 5. Please stand for the reading of God's word. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work, and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I was hanging out with some pastor friends the other night, and uh, we were kind of talking shop. And one of the things that seems to come up a lot is the interesting interactions we have with people in the world, especially when they find out that we're pastors. Being a pastor, that's like one of the, the interesting things that comes along with the job is you have sometimes really fascinating first conversations with people. Sometimes they're very short. It's like, what do you do? They tell me, what do you do? I'm a pastor. And then they find the quickest, you know, exit to get out of the conversation as possible. But sometimes we have really interesting conversations and sometimes the conversations are incredibly encouraging. People find out I'm a pastor and sometimes they're, they're not even people of faith, but they'll say, you know, when I was a kid, our family was really struggling and the deacons from the local church would show up at our house and put groceries on our front porch every week. And there are times that we wouldn't have eaten if it wasn't for the local church. I'll hear other stories of someone who has a friend. You know, they're very clear. I'm not religious. Like, don't, don't try to put, push this on me. But I did have a friend who they were really struggling, and they got involved in this church, and their life kind of turned around. And I'm not really religious, but something happened there. Sometimes the conversations are really, really encouraging. And as you can imagine, sometimes they're not as encouraging. Sometimes people, when they find out I'm a pastor, you can just tell there's a whole lot of hurt from their experience in the church, a whole lot of frustration and disappointment of maybe they had a bad experience, maybe their families had a bad experience, but I hear a lot, you know, I still believe in God. I'm just not too into church, and sometimes I can understand where that's coming from. And I share all that to say the church, it's paradoxical, isn't it? Sometimes the church is a really beautiful, powerful, dynamic place. And other times it's a really disappointing and even pathetic place. Sometimes you go and you're blown away and you're, you're brought to tears by what you see in your midst. And other times you're kind of turned off and you feel like you want to hold the church at a distance. And what is it that makes the difference? What's the difference between a dynamic church and a disappointing church, a powerful church and a pathetic church, a beautiful church and a church that, that you want to keep at arm's length? I'll tell you, that's a question that, that's talked a lot about among pastors. And to pull you back a little in my life, I get marketing emails, church marketing emails all the time that are trying to answer that question for me. Like if you could do this in your Sunday service, or if you could help transform your family ministry into more of a Disney World type atmosphere, that's how you're going to create this powerful ministry. I mean, it's how do you capture lightning in a bottle is oftentimes what they're trying to ask. And what Paul tells us in this text and what he shows us in this text, what he's teaching here, he's teaching us the essence of what it means to be a powerful church in a beautiful church. And at the very heart of what it means to be that kind of church, 
it's that you keep in step with the Spirit. That's been his theme. A powerful church is a church that is keeping in step with God's Spirit. And Paul, in this text, he actually walks through, he gives us three things that I want to highlight that are marks and signs of a church that's keeping in step with the Spirit. One, a Spirit-led church will restore the wandering with gentleness. Two, a Spirit-led church will shoulder burdens with eagerness. And then three, a Spirit-led church is filled with people who know how to carry their own load with humility. And so we're going to look at those three things. And these are very simple. They're simple concepts, I would say, but, but they're really hard to live out. And when you live in and when we live into these things together, it presents one of the most compelling pictures of the gospel of Jesus Christ that the world will ever see. And so we're going to start chapter 6, verse 1. Spirit-led church restores the wandering with gentleness. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, brothers, brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Now, what Paul is saying here is that a church that's led by the spirit is going to, spirit is going to take two things seriously. One, it's going to take sin seriously. And two, it's going to take the grace of God seriously. And that means that if you see someone caught in sin, and it's, it's important we clarify what Paul means when he says caught in sin. He's not talking about like someone, you know, that you've been spying on and then you turn the lights on, right, as they're caught in sin. He's talking more like someone who's been tangled up or ensnared or trapped, someone who's found themselves right in the midst of a sin. They got themselves in a mess they couldn't get themselves out of. Paul says a spirit-led church what they should do is they should go and seek to restore them with the spirit of gentleness. That that should be the culture of the church. And we're pressing in a minute to what that looks like. But before we do, I really want to be clear about what Paul is not saying here because people can go weird with texts like these. Paul is not saying that the church of Jesus Christ should be filled with sin detectives and sin hunters, with a magnifying glass in one hand and binoculars in the other, looking to bust people anytime they see them making a misstep. That's, that's not what he's saying at all. The, the church of Jesus Christ must not be a police state environment where anytime someone sins, they get pounced on. 1 Peter 4, 8, Peter says, above all, Keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And so holding what Peter says there with what Paul says here, I think you have to recognize that sometimes people sin not because they're like trapped in a really dark place. Sometimes people sin because they're having a bad day. You know, they got bad news. They got a bad night's sleep, but they're having an off day. And in a spirit-filled, spirit-led church, you don't pounce on people for having a bad day. Maybe you check in with them. Maybe you ask them if everything's going all right. But you don't confront them over every sin that you see in their life. There's actually a great spiritual virtue, and that's the virtue of knowing how to overlook sin in each other's lives. I'll tell you, if you want to have a good friendship, if you want to have a good marriage, knowing how to actually overlook sin is, I think, one of the most important parts of a really healthy marriage. Because if you can't overlook sin, it's constant conflict, right? I'm the only one. Like you you got to be able to do it. And when I say overlook sin, I'm not saying to say it doesn't matter. I'm not saying to say it's not real. 
Overlooking sin is recognizing they just sinned against me, but I sin all the time. Jesus died for our sins, and I'm not going to make a big deal out of it, and I'm not going to rub their noses in it. A lot of times we should overlook sin, especially if it's a one-off. But what Paul is talking about here is if someone has a bad day and that bad day turns into a bad month or a bad year, if the sin becomes pervasive and a pattern in their life, then we as the church, we must step in and we must speak up. This could be anything from, you know, something obvious like an addiction that you notice in a friend or a loved one. It could be something a little more subtle that you just see a creeping bitterness in someone's soul and like a a persistent kind of cynical mindset. It could be someone who's just harsh with their spouse. And you watch the way they talk to their spouse and talk about their spouse, and you see that this isn't like they just got in a fight and they're just blowing off steam. This is, this is a pattern. Paul says that a spirit-led church, you have to speak up. What he says in particular, he says, you who are spiritual should restore him or her, in a spirit of gentleness. And the word translated spiritual there, some people read that and they think, oh, that means the pastors, you know, or the super Christians. But really that word, probably the best translation would be you who are spirit people. And so I want to be really clear. Paul's not saying when someone's caught in sin, you don't, you can But the first thought shouldn't be, we should call the pastors to go and talk to them. Because as believers, we all have the Spirit. And what that means is we all are called to do this work of restoration with gentleness, with love, and the power of the Spirit. And the goal of this, the goal of speaking up, the goal of seeking someone out, Paul says it's to restore that word translated restores, translated elsewhere, it means to mend nets. It means to set a broken bone, which I think is a good, a good picture because setting a broken bone could be a very painful thing, but it's a healing thing. And so in a spirit-led church, we're willing to have painful conversations with the goal being the healing, the restoration of those we love. And Paul goes out of his way to say, and we have to do this with a spirit of gentleness. And we talked about gentleness last week as a fruit of the Spirit. And gentleness, one of the ways I defined it, gentleness is the ability to treat others with dignity and empathy and really to carry life's complexities with empathy. And what I mean by that is that if we're going to confront people, if we're going to call people out who are trapped in sin, we don't come from a place of superiority. I mean, Paul even warns about that. He says, keep watch on yourself too, lest you be tempted to pride. Instead, we recognize if someone's caught in sin, we recognize that, you know what? If we were put in their shoes, we had their upbringing, their demeanor and temperament. If our life situation and their life situation were the same, like we'd very often or very likely find ourselves in the same situation they are. This is really important because when someone sins, I don't know, there's something in us that's easily triggered to think, especially if it's a sin that we're not particularly prone to, those are the easiest ones for us to look at and just say, how could they do that? How could they do that? But what Paul says here is we go with gentleness, recognizing we might be inclined towards different sins, but we all have an inclination to sin. 
And so to sum up what Paul's saying here, he's saying we have to be a church. A beautiful church is a church that's not eager to confront, but is also not afraid to confront either. And I think we all tend to one extreme or the other. I would guess most of us tend towards the we don't like to do the confronting. If you love confrontation, you probably would be in a different church. But in our culture and in our day, like, we kind of, we're individualists, you know, and we live in a very individualistic culture. And so we think, like, we shouldn't get in each other's business. But in a church where sin has failed, where we fail to confront sin, what happens is sin not only becomes tolerated, oftentimes it becomes accommodated. Like, if we never speak up, then people continue on the road they're on. And something that was once agreed upon, like, hey, this isn't okay, it just becomes part of the culture. You want to take it to the extremes. This is when you see, like, pastors who abuse their power, priests who abuse their power. What happens? Well, you don't want to confront. We don't have those kind of hard conversations. And so you just let it be, or even worse, you cover it up. And when that happens... The church is pathetic, is it not? I mean, it's disappointing and it's pathetic. It's not beautiful and it's not powerful. On the other side, a church that's eager to confront, you know, it's eager to get in each other's business. What happens in those kinds of churches? Well, you create a culture of fear and a culture where people play the religious game and a culture where no one ever wants to be honest because they know if they're honest about the slightest thing, it's like, well, you know that's a sin and you shouldn't sin and you need to repent of that sin. It's like, yeah, I know. That's why I'm telling you. Well, you should tell me, you know, like you should repent of it before you come to me. And, and that's not a beautiful or powerful church either. Walking into a church that has a culture of fear or hiding, no one ever leaves and says, man, that place is amazing. But when you know how to do both, that's when the church becomes beautiful. When people who have broken lives or broken marriages or broken stories where they find healing and wholeness. They, they don't feel the need to hide it and act like everything's okay. They can be honest, but they also find people who come alongside of them and say, hey, we want to walk with you through this and we believe that by God's grace you can change. That's a powerful thing. And I can point to so many people in our church who have seen that happen. Marriages that most people said that marriage is over. And brothers and sisters in love stepped in, and sometimes over a long period of time, and the marriage was restored. There's also marriages that weren't restored, but the people were. That the divorce wasn't the end of their walk with Jesus or the end of their relationship with the church. That people spoke the truth in love. I call those, all of those stories are like trophies of grace that show the power and beauty of Christ church that we love each other enough to say something, but we don't rub each other's noses in our sin. And Paul says, that's number one. That's one mark of a beautiful, powerful, spirit-led church. And that's hard. It's challenging to be those kinds of people. And then Paul goes to verse two, and this one's challenging as well. He says in verse two that we should bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. That a spirit-led church shoulders each other's burdens with eagerness. There are two big assumptions Paul makes here in this verse. The first assumption is that life is hard and it's filled with burdens. Can I get an amen? We're not even an amening church, but assumption number one, he doesn't say, if by chance a burden should appear in your midst, 
He just assumes it. You know, one week I wasn't preaching. I was sitting in the back and just kind of looking around at the rows in front of me, two or three rows in front of me. And, you know, one of the privileges, it's a weighty privilege, but the privilege of being a pastor is a lot of times I get a window into the burdens people are carrying, maybe more than others. And I was sitting there and every person in those two or three rows, I could list a burden. Looking around, here's what I saw. I saw someone who was in a job transition, someone who was unemployed, someone who was suffocating under extreme financial debt. I saw people who were, I know are struggling with depression and anxiety and eating disorders. I saw troubled marriages. I saw parents who I know are at the end of the rope with their kid. They don't know what else to do. I saw two single moms who are doing what seems to me an impossible task of juggling a job like so they can pay the bills and also caring for their kids and feeding their kids and raising their kids. I saw people that I know, chronic pain, chronic illness, two people with incurable diseases, one person with cancer. And on top of all of that, you know, there's the spiritual temptations, there's the doubt, there's the sins that everyone carries with them. And it was three rows, and I am not exaggerating. Next day or that, the next week, I was sitting with a couple of our pastors, and I just said, sometimes I think we miss just how many burdens there are in our church and how everyone is carrying burdens. And I don't want us to be a people that ever overlook the fact that, that everyone's sitting around you, they've got weight that they're carrying. And that the people that you smile and you shake hands with and you ask them how they're doing and they'll, they'll tell you a little bit, never dismiss what kind of burden they might be bringing with them into Sunday gatherings or into community group. That's the first assumption. Life is hard and it's filled with burdens. The second assumption is that God never intended for us to carry those burdens alone. God never intended for us to carry the burdens alone. The picture of bearing each other's burdens is practical and powerful. I mean, think of a friend moving a couch. You know, that's kind of what you got to think about. That a burden is something that's so heavy, you might be able to move it on your own, but it's sure a lot easier if someone else is there with you. My wife has this thing where, I don't know, every six months I come home from work and like furniture's been, been rearranged. I don't know if any other husbands have that happen to them. And my wife's not a very large human being and there are these giant couches that have been moved. And I'm like, what? Who came over and helped? And she's like, I did it. I'm like, why? Well, I wanted to change it. Well, why didn't you wait till I came home? And She's like, well, I, you know, here's what I did and here's how I got it. I'm like, well, stop doing that, please. Like, I'm not saying you can't do it. I know you're strong, but you're either going to break the couch or break yourself. Like, it's a burden. You can do it on your own, but it's a whole lot easier if you got an extra set of hands. What Paul's saying is a lot of people are carrying things that they, they can probably carry on their own, but it's probably going to hurt them in the long haul probably going to grind them into the ground. And he says, we should go in and we should help shoulder it. And this image is so powerful because if you think about, think about moving a couch, if you're going to help someone move a couch, one, you're going to be standing so close to them that you're almost standing in their shoes. 
You're going to be following in their steps. And you're going to put some of yourself under the burden that they're trying to carry. You're not taking the whole thing. You're just sharing the load. And what was before an almost unbearable load, now it's still a load, it's still heavy, but it's manageable. And no one's going to end up going to the doctor afterwards for pulled muscle or sprain or anything else. Paul is saying we should be the kind of people who step into each other's shoes, who seek to, to get under the burdens that people are carrying so that we can help. These could be physical, emotional, spiritual, financial burdens. But the assumption here is that the church is a place where burdens are shared. This isn't a, in case of emergency break glass command, the bear here, it's in the present tense, it's ongoing. Paul isn't saying, hey, the church should be a place where you occasionally perform a helpful act. He's saying the church should be filled with people who seek to live helpful lives, where that's our posture and our bent. And Paul even goes so far as to say that it's as we bear each other's burdens that we fulfill the law of Christ. And that's, that's a weighty text right there. It says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Now, throughout Galatians, Paul's been saying, we don't relate to God on the basis of law. It's not about how what we do and what we don't do that determines our standing with God. But he says there is actually one law. If you want to know the sum of what it means to know God, to love God, and to walk with him, Paul writes in Galatians 5.14, the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We know we got this from Jesus who on the night before his crucifixion, when he's preparing his disciples, he's saying, this is what it's all about. This is what following me is all about. Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Now, what Paul does here in Galatians 6 is he does a real favor for us. Because love, for a lot of us, it's either, like our notion of it's either kind of foggy, like a hard thing to define, or it's so lofty that it's like, I could never do that. And what Paul does here is he pulls it out of the clouds and he brings it out of the fog and he says, do you want to know what love is? It's bearing burdens. What is the essence of our call? It's bearing burdens. For Paul... Fulfilling the law of Christ, loving your neighbor and bearing burdens, they're all synonymous. They're all one and the same. When you see someone who's struggling or weighed down, you show up, you step in, and you help. And I got to say, I've seen wonderful examples of this in our church. Last year, someone's van was totaled and some funky stuff happened with the insurance and they didn't have money to replace the van. And this was a real pretty big crisis, significant crisis for the family. And they just let me know like, hey, can you pray for us? This is some stuff that's going on. I made a couple of calls just to see if I could find a car that they could borrow. And instead, like four hours later, I got a call, hey, we've raised $10,000 and we've already got some leads on a van to replace it for the family. Like, that's awesome. That's powerful. Or we have a number of families in our church who, uh, are adoptive families. And if you don't know much about the adoption process, it usually costs $25,000 or more. And most families in our church don't have $25,000 laying around for that. But I can tell you story after story of families who 
they were stepping in, and some of them I had to convince. I'm like, you have to let people know about the burden. Well, I don't want to burden other people. And I'm like, well, it's biblical. You're supposed to burden them. So, and then they, they put the need out there. It's like within a week, if that long, $25,000 raised like that. That's powerful, and it's beautiful, and it's compelling. But I know other stories, too, in the church. Because not everyone has that story, where people have really practical needs. Ask for help, and no one shows up. Or maybe they don't ask for help, but it's pretty obvious they're struggling, and no one steps in and volunteers. I talked to someone last year who was, they had a crisis in their home, like, with their physical home, with their foundation, and they needed help digging dirt, shoveling dirt. And they asked around, and it was like everyone in the church was busy. And they said, it's a stupid thing. It's just digging dirt and water in the basement. But when we actually needed help, like no one had the time to get their hands dirty. That's when the church is really disappointing, when burdens aren't shared. And it can really create a profound disillusionment in people that leads to bitterness towards the church. And so Paul says, a spirit-led church, it's where you shoulder burdens, where that's the norm. And I'll be honest, here's where things get complicated. If I stand here and say, this is a family, here's the burden, here's how you can help, y'all would jump on it like a dog on a bone. And I've seen you do it time and time again. I mean, just yesterday I was here, a lot of you were here for Affordable Christmas, which was amazing. If you weren't here this year to see it, you have to be there next year to see it because it's amazing. We helped 100 kids, basically, whose parents didn't have the resources to buy them presents for Christmas. You guys donated presents. You guys showed up and served. You made connections, and we helped dozens upon dozens of families be able to put presents under the tree for their kids. Like, that's amazing. It's powerful. It's beautiful. And so if I put the need up, it's like, okay, we can do that. You know, a number of years ago, I said, hey, our missionaries are reaching out to these people. They're seeing thousands of people come to Christ, but no one has a Bible there. Can we raise some money for Bibles? And I said, could we raise $20,000 for Bibles? And I was like, that's a crazy goal. Two weeks later, it was $65,000 that you guys gave. It was powerful and it was beautiful. And so if I put the needs before you, you guys respond. But what Paul's calling us to here is not just that we rally around like one big goal or one big need, but we live as people who have eyes to see the needs and we step into it in the day-to-day. That there doesn't have to be a promotion to go and be helpful people, but we live helpful lives. And when that's the case... A lot of times burdens go unshared, and sometimes they go unshared because people are afraid to share them, and a lot of times people are afraid to share them because they don't feel like it's a, the church is a place that's eager to carry burdens. And so these are the two callings. They're simple. I think you guys can see if a church really steps into this, it's a powerful and compelling and beautiful picture, but they're hard things to step into. And so the question becomes, how do we actually do this? How do we grow in becoming these kinds of people? And the big answer, of course, was the gospel. Because when we were wandering in sin, Jesus, he didn't rub our noses in it. He didn't abandon us. 
he gently sought us out and restored us. And when we were burdened by our sin, by our guilt, by our shame, Jesus came and he took our burdens on himself on the cross so that we might be set free from them. And so the big answer of how do we do this, it's the gospel. But notice Paul doesn't say, you know, carry burdens because Christ carried your burdens, although that's certainly true. Paul actually drills down in these verses, these last few verses, they're kind of confusing. But what Paul is saying in them, in essence, is saying, you got to take the gospel and it has to reshape how you actually understand yourself and your relationships. And that leads to my last point. Carry your own load with humility. I don't know if you noticed this when we read it earlier, but verses three to five are kind of strange. Uh, they're confusing, almost contradictory thoughts. When Paul writes in verse three, starting in verse three, for if anyone thinks he has something when he has nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not his neighbor, for each will have to bury his own load. Is that confusing to anyone else in first reading? It says you're nothing, but go find a reason to boast. Carry each other's burdens. You better carry your own load. It's like, what are you talking about, Paul? And to make sense of it, you actually have to go back to the very end of chapter five and understand that, that all of this flows out of what Paul says there, where he says, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited. That's a key phrase. Provoking one another or envying one another. What Paul is saying if we're going to be a church that keeps in step with the Spirit, then our conceit, which you could also translate our pride, must be put to death. And the reason why is our pride, our conceitedness, this feeling we all have, this pull we all have to look inward, to feel sorry for ourselves, to feel entitled to things. When we hear carry each other's burdens, we're not instantly thinking like, what burdens do I need? We're thinking, that's right, I got a bunch of burdens. People need to come and help me. We all have this inside of us. Where we're the center of the universe. And Paul says that that inhibits us from walking in step with the Spirit. Instead of keeping in step with the Spirit, pride leads us to compare. And that's why he says, let us not become conceited. Why? Because when you're conceited, you end up provoking one another or envying one another. Either when you're filled with pride, you either think that you're better than other people, which leads to provoking, he says, which is kind of the sense of like challenging to a fight even in the original language. And the way this plays out is when we play the comparison game and we see someone stuck in sin that we're not particularly tempted to or we think that we're better than them, we're like, well, they got themselves into that mess. Of course, they're fools. Let them get themselves out of it. We see them carrying a burden in relation to some sin that we look at and say, I'd never commit that sin. We're like, well, you reap what you sow. I'm going to let them do their thing here. It's an air of superiority. Now, the flip side can be envying. This is when we play the comparison game and we lose. Maybe you never lose. Sometimes I lose when I play the comparison game. I'm like, nope, they're better than me across the board. And that's a bummer. And when that happens... You're filled with jealousy. And when that happens, that's when you evaluate people's needs. And it's like, that's ah, it's kind of good for them to have some hardship thrown on them. Their life's too good. You'd never say it, but you think it. We think it. That's what pride does. We play the comparison game. And instead of being a place that's seeking to love and carry burdens, we're evaluating everything that comes across our desk and saying, no, they deserve that. No, 
They don't deserve my help. And that's why Paul says, if we're going to demonstrate the power of the Spirit, comparison has to be put to death. And Paul puts it to death in verse 3 when he says, if anyone thinks he is something when he has nothing, he deceives himself. Now, Paul's not talking about human dignity here. He's talking about what we bring to our relationship with God. He's reminding us that at the heart of Christianity, as we come to God with nothing, with empty hands or with our sin, that's all we bring. And God saves us, not because we've done good works, not because he sees potential in us or we seem like good prospects. He saves us because he's a God of grace. And Paul's saying, remember, you were nothing when he saved you. You deserve nothing but judgment. And he redeemed you. And now if you're going to start evaluating people on, you know, they really deserve my help, they not so much. Paul's like, all of a sudden you start thinking you're something. But you're nothing. We're all nothing. Apart from the grace of God. We're tempted to pride. We're tempted to think that we're better than other people. And Paul says, No. But then he goes on and he says, let each one test his own work and then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. And what Paul's saying here is if you really want to play the comparison game, quit comparing yourselves to others and start comparing yourself to yourself. What he means is if, if you really want to play the comparison game, look at what God has done in your life over time. And hopefully you can find a reason to boast in that. And I think it's a legitimate reason to boast. This is who I was. Here's how I've grown. This is where I am. Praise God. Paul's saying, that's a good thing to boast about. But he's saying, boasting about where you are compared to other people, that's not a good game. That's why he ends by saying, for each will have to bear his own load. The word translated load here is different than the word burden. Burden is something that's heavy and oppressive, really hard for one person to carry. The word translated load here in verse 5 is a word that's used for a soldier's backpack. Like it might be heavy, but it's manageable. And when Paul says each will have to bear his own load, what he's saying is God has given each of us a unique story and background, a unique set of gifts and difficulties, a unique life situation unique temperament, all of those things fall under our load. It's our responsibility before God. And all of our loads are different. All of our loads are different. And he's saying, what you need to do is carry your own load with humility. And part of your load is bearing burdens and loving others. There's no part of your load that's stuck in playing the comparison game. When you understand this, that, that God is... He's wired us differently. He's gifted us differently. He's, we're all very different with different loads. It actually makes the comparison game foolish, doesn't it? If you have a race, a 100-yard dash, and someone starts at 90 yards in and someone else starts at the starting line, there's no point in comparing who wins. Like, man, he's so much faster. No, he's not. He just started 90 yards ahead of him. In the same way, when we play the comparison game, even the people we know best will never know fully the load people are carrying. And some people here, you grew up in really hard homes. You know, emotions were never talked about except for anger. That was the one acceptable emotion in your household. 
was anger and blowing up at people. And let's say there's another person in our church who grew up in a really healthy home. They were blessed, all sorts of things. If they look at the angry person, you know, the person who struggles with anger, they're like, man, they got a real anger problem. I don't know what that, it's like, well, you, you grew up, you know, and your life was pretty easy all along. And they grew up in a violent, angry household. And so maybe they're a little angrier than you, but they might, might be much further down the road in their growth and maturity than you are. Someone's born on third base and someone else is born in the dugout. When they get to second base, the person on third base shouldn't be feeling better than them. We all have different stories. We all have different scripts. We all have different loads. And that's why Paul says, don't compare. Don't try to evaluate who's worthy of your help. Carry your own load. In our house, we translate this to our kids as you do you. That's our phrase all the time. Kid comes and starts complaining about how something's unfair or something their sibling's done. My wife should be like, hey, you know what? You do you. You watch your own life. Quit worrying about them. That's kind of what Paul's saying here. You have a calling before God to walk in obedience, to bear burdens, and to quit comparing. Do that with faithfulness. And I'll tell you, churches are beautiful. When people aren't comparing It's not a competition where people are humbly walking in the call that God has for them, carrying burdens when they can, helping share burdens when they can, and speaking the truth in love. It's a compelling picture to the world, and that's what Jesus desires of us. So as we come to the Lord's table, we're reminded of Jesus Christ's body broken for us and his blood that was shed for us. For me, as I was working on this sermon, I was thinking about, I have a lot of people I need to repent to, preferably before the sermon, so it's not awkward, you know? Like all the ways that I've failed to not carry burdens or not speak the truth or not speak the truth with gentleness. And what the table reminds us is it reminds us our standing with God is not dependent upon how well we perform in these things. Our standing with God is determined solely by the finished work of Jesus Christ. But he did that work in us for a reason, and he wants to see us grow. And so coming to the table is a chance for us to confess our sins, to repent, to be assured of God's love for us, and to find strength to move forward and to grow. So if you're here and you're a Christian, that's what I would encourage your prayer would be. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but you take part in Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. Let me pray.